You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and today on the show is the return of Ralph Macchio. And no, it's not Ralph Macchio, the actor. This is Ralph Macchio, the editor from Marvel Comics, who did a lot of work over the years through a number of different titles, including being an associate editor for Marvel's Black and White magazines. And that's where he first got associated with Moon Knight. And we hear all about um, how Ralph brought Moon Knight kind of back into popularity through the pages of the Hulk magazine. And we'll hear Ralph's thoughts on a whole bunch of different subjects relating to Moon Knight, and I hope you all enjoy it. Visit us on Facebook or Instagram, and you can send me an email at epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com if you have any comments or questions. But uh, let's just get right in there with the interview with Ralph Macchio. So in the early days, you wrote a lot of letters to the comics, right? You were a prolific did, yeah. letter writer, um, and you were, you've been a fan since the beginning. Was it a dream of yours to to work for Marvel or to work in comics in general, or was that just something that kind of happened? You know, I have to say, it was just something that kind of happened, because I never really considered... I mean, as a kid, when you're reading the books, you always imagine what stories you would do with those characters. But I never envisioned myself actually working on staff at Marvel. What, it, what had happened was I was actually going to graduate school and getting an English degree to go teach English. And at the time I was getting it, teaching positions were few and far between, especially up here in the Northeast. It was just very difficult. So I was consider, uh, continuing to pursue the degree, but I wasn't really you know, uh, seeing anything on the horizon employment-wise. And I was not a convention goer, but I did go to a Marvel uh, convention or some New York convention back in 74, 75. And I met Don McGregor there. And Don McGregor um, was someone whose uh, comics, uh, Kill Raven and Black Panther, I'd written many, many letters to. And Don had remembered that I had written them. So when I gave him my name to sign something, he says, hey, why don't you wait around? You know, hang around. We'll, we'll chat. We'll go back in the convention. I'll introduce you to some people. He was awfully nice because I was on my way out of the convention. And if I had actually just gone through those doors, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Because wow. It, really, because it was Don who brought me back into the convention. Uh, the other person he introduced me to was Howard Chaikin back then. And, um, you know, Chaikin's a, a wonderful guy. He could be very he could be very abrasive, Howard. But he's yep. awfully, awfully nice underneath it all. But, but he's not a guy you want to cross swords with because he'll cut you to ribbons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we were, you know, we, we met him and all. And then he took me up to the office. He says, hey, how'd you like to come up to Marvel sometime for a tour? And I'm, I'm going, oh, okay. You know, I'm not really doing anything. So I went up to Marvel and they took me around. He took me around to meet people. And I ran into, I didn't say I ran into, I met Chris Claremont. 
Chris also remembered that I had written a lot of letters. Oh, well. Yeah, I wrote a lot to X-Men and Iron Fist and all, especially Iron Fist. He had been taken, had taken over the Foom magazine that Marvel was doing. And he said, listen, if you're not doing anything, he goes, would you like to interview Roy Thomas and write an article on Conan? I said, okay, I'm here. Why not? Yep. So I kept coming back to Marvel on Fridays because that's when Roy was in the office. He was, he was at that time trying to make a decision whether he was going to go out to the West Coast and seek fame and fortune out there or come back as the Marvel editor-in-chief, his second shot at it. And then I kept coming up, and he was just unable to talk, so I wound up hanging around Marvel. I got to know people. I got to know Steve Gerber and Engelhart and all these other guys and Doug, and, you know, and we would I just hang out with them. We'd go out to movies. Also, uh, my family owned a moving company, a furniture moving company at the time, Macrae Movers, and a lot of the people who lived in comics, most of them really, lived in the five boroughs, and they were always moving from one apartment to the other, and I would offer my services as a... Moved them for free. Wow. So that wound up, I would come by on a Saturday with a step van and a couple of buddies, and we would move them. So, uh, again, I, I long before I actually got the official job at Marvel, I was hanging around up there, thanks to Don McGregor, and then Chris Claremont trying to get me to interview Roy. And I finally did get to interview him in uh, Fufu Magazine, and uh, I wrote a long article on Conan. But um, that's really how it happened. And then, then I got friendly with John Warner and Archie Goodwin, and when Archie got promoted to editor-in-chief, John Warner, who was, then became the black-and-white magazine editor, needed an assistant. I wasn't getting anywhere. I was still in graduate school. And he says, Ralph, why don't you, uh, you know, take a job here as an assistant? He goes, you can continue to pursue your you know, graduate degree, but you'd be working. So, again, all very casual. I said, okay. So I got on staff as an assistant, and I've been there ever since. Wow. It's hard to imagine that that sort of process happens today. <laughs> it would be a lot more difficult uh, yeah. today, I think, to pursue that kind of thing. But, but I was, especially because everybody is so far flung, you know, the freelancers and all that. Everybody's all over the country and the world. But back then, mostly people lived in the New York City area. So tell me about these black and white magazines. How did they come about? Why did, why, why did Marvel start doing them? Well, I think Stanley really wanted to expand the horizons of Marvel publishing. And at that time, you had, you know, other black and whites. You had Eerie, Creepy, Vampirella. I never read those, really, but I knew they were out there. And um, I, I remember um, when I came on staff, John Warner was, had then taken over as editor on Doc Savage, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, um, Planet of the Apes, a magazine such as that. And I became his assistant on it. And we also started the Rampaging Hulk magazine, um, you know, a number of other things. But again, that was really because Stan wanted to expand the horizons for Marvel into different areas, uh, Monsters Unleashed, Vampire Tales, things such as that. So we could pick up the horror market, um, you know, adventure stuff with Doc Savage. And um, that was really it. So I, I kind of cut my eye teeth working on, on the magazine. So it wasn't just comic stories in there. We also had articles and features, and I did the letter columns and all. So I got a good grounding in it before I moved over into the color comics. And working with John was a lot of fun. And then, you know, Archie Goodwin as editor-in-chief at the time, I learned an awful lot from him, too. Um, but that was what was really behind it. So I, I was not involved with the color comics when I first came to Marvel. I started on those black and white magazines, of which Doug wrote an awful lot. Uh, Doug was the mm -hmm. main writer on Planet of the Apes, we had Mike Plug on the main feature, which adapted the um, the film, and also uh, they went off on their own and did other stuff. 
And then Tom Sutton did some of the finer work of his career with Doug on Future History Chronicles, which was a series that uh, I just absolutely loved. And, and Tom Sutton's stuff and Doug's stuff on there was just first rate. Um, and then, you know, I worked on Doc Savage magazine, which Doug also wrote. Um, and, um, you know, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu again, Doug would write some of that as well. Um, so, you know, Doug was heavily involved with all of those things. Uh, he did the Frankenstein feature in Monsters Unleashed. So he was really um, our, our prime writer on a lot of those magazines. But they were great fun to work on. They really were. What are some of your favorite magazines? Well, I have to say, um, you know, I, I really loved the, the horror stuff. Um, and I, I loved also working with Roy on Savage Sword of Conan. Oh, yeah. I was very, oh, yeah, that was just a great experience. And uh, Roy, I became his East Coast liaison. I worked on the first uh, Star Wars comics um, way, way back then. And I worked on Savage Sword um, with Roy. Uh, and then later on, I became, after I did my stint in the color comics, I worked with Rick Marshall on our magazine line. And we did things like Warriors of the Shadow Realm, which was Weird World, um, in a, a big magazine format. We did it in Marvel Color, which again, Doug wrote, uh, John Buscema drew. And uh, we would also adapt things. We adapted uh, Jaws and Meteor and a bunch of other films out there. And we did the Rampaging Hulk magazine, which was then in color. So that was great. And it was, um, you know, I had a, a, just a great experience. I, I did spend, a, you know, a part of my time not working on the regular color comics, but I loved working on the Conan stuff and the horror stuff. It was, uh, that was my meat. I love that stuff. And Moon Knight was a backup feature in Rampaging Hulk. Yes, what had happened was Rick Marshall, who came in, was a very, very talented guy, but Rick was not that familiar with the Marvel characters. So he had asked me if I could think of a backup for Rampaging Hulk, and I loved Moon Knight, and I said, let's do Moon Knight. And I picked Gene Colan as the penciler because I really wanted to, I think more so than Doug, certainly, and, and Doug you know, has the prime voice on this because obviously he's the creator, but I always kind of saw... Um, Moon Knight as a potential Marvel Batman. I think certainly when Doug first created him in Werewolf by Night, he was not a Batman type character, but I thought it would be interesting if he did his own strip, if he had his own strip, that we could kind of move him into that direction. And I thought Gene Colan was a guy who could give real you know, good-looking atmospherics to it. So I put Gene on and he and Doug did some very, very nice stories. And then one day, a guy called Bill Sienkiewicz walked into the office, and he had these beautiful samples with him. And I guess he'd been up to D.C., didn't get any work up there. And I said, you know what? This is the guy who could give me the, the Batman look that I wanted on um, even more than Gene on, um, on Moon Knight. So I put him on. And uh, then he and Doug just got along famously, and we watched the growth of Bill Sienkiewicz um, wow. to becoming you know, the incredible artist you know, that he became. But, it, but the... His formative years, um, where he became the artist that we all know today, was on Moon Knight. Well, you know, another interesting thing was we had an inker at that time. And uh, no disrespect to the inker, he was a fine inker. But I remember seeing Bill's pencils and then seeing the inks, and I didn't feel that the inker was really catching what Bill was putting in there. And, and truthfully, I don't think any inker could really have caught what Bill was doing with his pencils. So I remember speaking to Bill at one point privately saying, you know, Bill, if you're really going to become the artist that's going to get the kind of recognition that you deserve, I think you're going to have to tell the editor, and I think it was Denny O'Neill at that time, that you need to 
you know, to wind up inking yourself. I just think it's important. So he, he actually did make the case and he wound up inking himself after that. And that's when he could do all of the visual tricks uh, in the pencils and inks that, that actually showed up on the page. So that, that um, I think helped Bill along to become the guy he, he needed to be because I don't think anybody could quite do or give justice do justice to his pencils and the kind of techniques and tricks he was doing um, with the inks. He needed to do that himself. Yeah, it, it certainly adds uh, a different dynamic. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And he's a, you know, and then after that, of course, he got together with um, with Frank. Um, they did the Electra stuff and mm-hmm. the you know the Kingpin thing. And at one point, um, I had those two guys teamed up, and um, we were going to do a two-issue fill-in um, on Daredevil. And it was going to be the Kingpin story that I think later became the Kingpin graphic novel or, or whatever it was. And I think Jim Shooter came in and he saw the stuff and he said, you know what? We really shouldn't be doing this in the monthly book. Let's do this as a special thing. So that's how it became. That's how Frank and Bill um, did their first work together. And it became that, that special, uh, I think, uh, Kingpin or Electra, whatever it was, graphic novel that they did um, because of that. Because originally that was scheduled as a fill-in for, uh, for Daredevil. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And they got along famously, too. And, you know, they they teamed up on a number of things. And Bill could kind of write his own ticket because uh, his work was just uh, so fabulous. And just to sit back and say, you know, this guy just, you know, he came in one day kind of doing a Neil Adams sort of shtick and then just went off on his own. And and it's, it's nothing is really more satisfying, I think, for an editor than to see someone come in that you started with and just watch them take off and yeah. uh, and and find their own way. That's that's and and liberating themselves. That's that's extremely gratifying. So as far as Moon Knight is concerned, in the pages of the Hulk, um, what what sort of um, guidance did you give Doug in terms of the stories that he was writing or the stuff that he was putting into this magazine? You know, I don't think I really had to guide Doug in any way. I think Doug knew. What he wanted to do, and I think when he started to work with Bill, I think he geared the stories a little bit uh, more towards uh, what what Bill was strong with. Mm-hmm. And I think he began to move more into that kind of Batman-esque thing just sort of naturally. Although, again, you know, Doug has always made a strong case for the fact that the character was not, in his view, Marvel's Batman. But, you know, Bill started to draw him with that huge cape and all, and he began to just sort of get that Batman kind of look about him. Yeah. And I think Doug began to kind of gear the stories a little bit more in that direction. But no, I don't think um, I ever really directed Doug. Um, he, he knew what he wanted to do, and you know, he, he had directions he wanted to go. The, the one thing that, that I have kind of regretted about what's been done with Moon Knight since uh, Doug left was that there, there's just been this tendency, even though there have been some fine Moon Knight stories done, there's just been this tendency to play him up as a madman or schizophrenic because of these other identities. See, in my view, and I've expressed this many times at retreats and meetings, he's not crazy. He, you know, Mark Spector is fully in charge of his personality. Those other identities are very much like what the shadow did. He created them so that he could get information. You know, Mm -hmm. the situation was that uh, people seem to look at this and go, oh, okay, he, he must be schizophrenic because he's got all these other personalities. No, no, no. Jake Lockley was a cab driver because he could be the street-level guy at which Mark Spector could get criminal information. You know, And Stephen Grant, well, as a millionaire, 
he did business and, you know, was, was connected with many, many high-level people, both politically and financially. So he got information there. So all these other characters and identities he assumed were with the full knowledge of him knowing who he was. So, but, but there has been this tendency to kind of play that as, oh, he must, you know, these multiple personality disorders and things like that. I never saw it that way, and I still don't see it that way. Well, even at, when Doug was writing it, um, the character of Mark Spector would fully, fully embrace the other personalities to the point where even when, he, if he's Jake Lockley and he walks into Steve Grant's mansion and Marlene is there, Marlene knows that he has these different personalities, but he still is Jake Lockley in front of her, like to her face right. until he takes exactly. off Jake Lockley's hat and then he's Steve Grant. Um, yep. So I could see the, the natural progression of... Uh, or evolution of the character becoming like that kind of thing taking over more and more to the point where he does like the lines are blurred of, of his personalities. But right, uh, it yeah. could happen. Yes. But that's not, uh, that wasn't Doug's intention for sure. Yeah. Right. That wasn't his intention. And I, I never, I, I always saw that as kind of limiting in terms of story material. They seem to have minded quite a bit, but to me, it was always more interesting to see him assume these other three identities, uh, you know, obviously Moon Knight, the costume version, and Jake Lockley, and Stephen Grant, and all, and Mark Spector, I guess, being the prime identity. But I always just saw them as outgrowths of things that Mark Spector needed. They were different yeah. ways for him to deal with the world. And again, yes, if, if we, you know, if, if I have to deal with it as a reader, I can say that, yeah, I guess at some point, playing these identities enough times that it could be a bit blurred and, and, you know, he, he might lose it a little bit, but I think it's just been overplayed. I think that that's right. where people naturally tend to go now yeah. when they do a Moon Knight book. And my feeling is it's just much more interesting to see him as Moon Knight, you know, fighting these crazy criminals doing the, you know, all the, all the stuff that he did for Bushmaster and all the rest of them. And I, I always liked the idea of us and seeing him as sort of that kind of dark Knight figure um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that way, I just think he works best that way. Those are the kind of stories I'm more entertained by than yet another story about him being, you know, schizophrenic. <laughs> it definitely changes <laughs> the focus of of Moon Knight's mission. Exactly. Yeah, yeah for sure. So in Marvel Preview, uh, Moon Knight gets a, his full issue. Uh, now, yes. you wrote a little forward in that, in that issue talking about your relationship with Moon Knight, which I found was quite interesting. Um, why, why do you like Moon Knight so much that you wanted him to be, you know, a focal character? Well, you know what? I, I've always liked the kind of sort of midnight type character. I've always liked the guys who kind of hide in the darkness. And I've always liked that sort of, you know, um, character who appears in the rooftops and, and is just Marvel didn't really have that kind of character at that point. And that's why I thought Moon Knight could fulfill that function. It was almost like, Hey, you know, you, you got a guy like Sienkiewicz drawing this, you might as well take full advantage of it. And I just love the idea of him, you know, appearing at night on, on a, on a rooftop and, and New York city becoming this kind of, you know, crazy, uh, crazy city with all these weird villains in them and, and just, uh, Moon Knight being the only one who could really contend with it. You know, this was sort of his world. The, just the idea of, the, you know, a character hiding in shadows and the, that sort of thing. I always liked that a lot. And I felt that Marvel, you know, 
uh, could have used a character along those lines. So that's why I thought Moon Knight, you know, certainly served that function, particularly when Bill was drawing him. So, um, and again, the visual is great. I mean, um, he's kind of the opposite of Batman because Batman has the, the dark cape and cowl. And Moon Knight, of course, is, you know, yeah, jet he stands and silver, out. Yeah. as they said. Yeah, he stands out. So it's a, it's a different thing. But he had, you know, the throwing, uh, the truncheon, and he had the, you know, the half moon uh, throwing darts and, and, you know, the, the moon copter and all that other cool stuff. And he had his own, you know, Alfred the Butler with Frenchie. So I thought that stuff was, was great. And I didn't think that we were, we were ripping off Batman because he had his own identity, really, and his own thing. You know, he was kind of a little bit of the Batman, but also a lot of the shadow was in there, too. And you had the mercenary aspect of him, which uh, had nothing to do with Batman. So, um, again, I thought Moon Knight was, was unique, was very interesting, and um, was just a great visual, especially with the, you know, the backdrop of uh, nighttime New York City. And that's what, that's what I loved, and I, I still like that. So um, that, that's why I, I wanted to see him you know, as, a, as a prime character. I really thought he could be elevated into the, into the ranks of a major Marvel character. In that Marvel preview forward that you wrote, you, you say that he was getting a lot of overseas attention. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, they had actually done a Moon Knight television show in Japan that I had been informed of. Um, and, and, that you know, there was some, some real interest in him overseas. So I remember mentioning that to Doug, and that was just something that information sort of came to me secondhand. But I thought, wow, that's really uh, that's really cool. So he almost had a kind of an international appeal, too. Maybe it was the... Um, the Stephen Grant aspect of him being sort of that international uh, playboy kind of thing. But uh, yes, he was getting some international attention. I believe there was a, a Moon Knight television series done in Japan. And you never saw any of it? No, never did. Huh, I remember that's mentioning really interesting. it to Doug, and we, yeah, we never saw it, though, but I, I'd heard about it. Interesting. Um, did you have anything to do with Moon Knight getting his own monthly series? I, you know, I have to say it gets a little fuzzy at that point. I, I don't want to take credit for it. I just think that the character at that point had become popular enough that uh, he was able to kind of pick up a monthly comic. Um, you know, we, we had done him um, in the black and white and, um, you know, Marvel preview and all. And I think we were kind of setting him up to give him a, a shot at being a monthly character. So, you know, if, if I helped to promote the character then I may have had a little something to do with him, you know, getting the monthly book, but I don't think that that was the decision was not mine. And I do remember working on it. I think, uh, cause I think Denny O'Neill was editing it at one point. That's right. And, uh, yes, yes. And I worked as Denny's assistant. So I think I worked, uh, with him on moon Knight as, as his assistant, but they thought Denny was a, a logical choice to edit moon Knight. But yeah, I, I thought that we had, we had given him enough exposure that he could certainly uh, be given a shot as a, as a monthly character. You got one credit in the monthly, in the Moon Knight monthly. It's as a guest editor for Moon Knight number 26, story called Cabbie Killer. Do you remember that? You know what? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Wow. I don't know if we were listening assistants at that point as, uh, on the thing, because I did work with Denny as an assistant, so I probably didn't get the credit, but I really don't remember Candy Killer at Okay. All. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Apparently, there are stories I've written people have, have mentioned to me that I don't remember writing. And somebody brought them to my attention uh, who was interviewing me about something. And I said, I don't even remember writing that. But then apparently I had. So, uh, so here's a case where I'd edited something as a guest editor, and I don't remember <laughs> doing it. I well, hope it was good. Yeah. 
yeah, it was a good story. Um, okay. So you haven't done as much writing as you have editing. You're primarily editor, right? But you did yes. uh, you did a good stint in Marvel two and one. Yes, and Thor. Um, Mark and, and I Thor, did a, that's right. Mark a yeah. Wolfman. We had a long stint in Thor. And I have to say, uh, right now, Curtis, I'm actually doing a lot of writing for Marvel, but a lot of it um, isn't being seen because we're doing it for Panini. I'm writing two or three of these 11-page Avengers stories that uh, Panini is doing. And it's really a, a discipline-heavy thing because I've got to do a complete Avengers story in 11 pages Whoa. where you bring the Avengers in, yeah, they fight a villain, and the story ends, and it's got to be complete. And I'm also doing stories with Mark Basso, the editor, that are connected to the Marvel films that are coming out. I did a Thor, I did an Avengers, I did a Black Panther, and right now I'm working on an Ant-Man story. And those are 20-pagers, but they kind of are related to the films, not, not connected in the sense that they deal with elements in the film, but that we, we deal with the um, kind of the movie continuity a little bit. Right. But those are stories that uh, may be distributed overseas or whatever, and the Panini stories, I think, go in a Panini magazine or whatever. So I'm actually doing a lot of writing now, and it's, it's making me exercise a whole different set of Marvel muscles. I always preferred editing to writing. First of all, uh, I'll be very honest with you, I am not that talented that I could sit there month after month and come up with new stories um, <laughs> for, for years and years. Yeah. I really am not. When I was talking to Doug, he was telling me that he's writing, you know, the equivalent of 10 issues per month. And they're just like, they're yeah. asking for more and more. And I asked him if that was hard or easy. And he was like, no, it was, it was fine. And I was like, yeah, he, it, it takes a certain he's person. He's a natural. Yep. He's yeah. definitely natural at it. Doug is a natural. He, you know, give him, ask him for a story, and you know, boom, the next day he's got a story in your desk. I mean, he would come in <laughs> once a week, and the pile of things that he'd done. You know, he would stay in his apartment in New York, and I'm sure he told you this because he wanted to make enough money so he could move out, you know, to Pennsylvania. And he would just sit there, and he would use his one finger on a manual typewriter, and he would type up scripts and scripts and scripts, and he'd come in <laughs> with you know, two or three hundred pages, and oh, then we boy. would you know hang out on a Friday and we'd go out to the movies. But that's what he wanted to do. And yes, he, he's just a natural at that. I was not. Um, it's a struggle for me to, to write. I, I enjoy it, and I enjoy the discipline of it. But it doesn't come as natural to me. I'm much more interested being a behind-the-scenes guy and kind of having the control a director does, um, where you sit there and you kind of are involved in every aspect of the comic or the magazine. You know, you, you work with the artist. You work with the writer. You work on the covers, you work with the colorist, the inker. You kind of put the whole thing together. When you're the writer, your you're kind of you know, discipline stops after you've done the script. I mean, you, you conceive the story and you do write the script, but at that point, it stops. You know, yeah. The yeah. editor then takes over. The editor handles the coloring aspect of it, the inking, uh, the art, all that stuff. So I kind of... Um, when I when I started at Marvel, the basic idea was not really to make a career out of editing. The idea was that you stayed on staff long enough so you could get freelance assignments. One of the reasons that I stayed at Marvel for so long was because that's what I really wanted to do, whereas most people who got on staff only stayed on to edit books until they could get enough freelance assignments. Oh. So Don McGregor and Doug and all those other guys – they waited until they got their books, then they left. I looked at that and I go, could I really, and do I really want to sit at home and try to write two or three comic books a month? I don't think I've got that in me. 
but I do like being here. I do like going to the office. I do like interacting with people. I do like holding a comic in my hand that I had a lot to do with putting it together. And that's why I stayed at Marvel because I was one of the, the few people who actually wanted to make a career out of editing the comics, not using it as a stepping stone to get freelance. Nice. Well, and that consistency of having long-term editors is really nice. I mean, you can look at books like Daredevil and, and Thor and such where where there's, I think, even if the creative team changes, the the editorial team stays the same and uh, and you keep that continuity going. Absolutely. And in fact, you, you know, you mentioned two books that I edited for about 10 years each. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I, yeah. And, and, and another thing, you know, I was very proud of the fact that John Romita Jr. was ready to leave comics until I put him on Daredevil. And he has certainly mentioned this in public, so I'm not telling tales out of school. He had had some problems, um, uh, I think, with people um, before that. There were some problems with a book he had done prior to this, and he was just kind of losing his interest in comics. And I remember um, his mother at one point, uh, Virginia, came to me, and we were, um, she and I were actually very good friends. She was the, uh, the head of um, the production department at that point, Virginia. And she said, you know, can you do something for John? He's ready to, ready to pack it in here. And I said, I got just the thing for him. So I went to him, and I said, John, I'll get you any anchor you want, but why don't you come over and pencil Daredevil? I got him Al Williamson on the inks. And he and Ann Nascenti just went to town, and yeah. I loved working on that stuff. And they stayed on for years. You know, everybody remembers the Frank Miller period as being the high point, and I loved working on that stuff too. I mean, I, you know, bow to no one in my my appreciation for Frank. But I think Ann's stuff was right up there. I really do. I think Ann did a fabulous job on that book. And working with John, that that was that was a you know gifted team. So I I loved Daredevil and I loved working on it and I loved the idea of being an editor because after they left I stayed on that book. Yeah. And I had another period, you know, where we we had uh, Scott McDaniel on there and he gave a totally different visual look to that book with Dan Chichester writing it. So yes, and the same thing with Thor. I was on there for the majority of Simonson's run, even though I didn't put Simonson on the book. Mark Grumwald did that brilliantly, and I stayed with him. And then after he left. I had a blast working with uh, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends for years in that book, even though it was a kind of a totally different, you know, uh, Thor, uh, in a sense, than what, um, what Walt had done. So, um, yes, as an editor, I loved being there, and I loved having that consistency, you know, working as a, as a through guy uh, with all these other teams, but me being behind the scenes and able to, to work with everybody there. So that was always much more of an interest to me mm-hmm. than writing. Although I did enjoy the writing. I mean, I love working on two and one and I love working on Thor and I love what I'm doing now. And I, I had a small stint on the Avengers that I did in, uh, in some, some other writing. And I'm very proud of that too. I loved writing Solomon Kane. Um, I had a great time working on Solomon Kane. It was, uh, I, I, I liked writing Solomon Kane so much that when, um, Carl Potts, the editor, I, I spoke with him one point and said, Carl, I want to write some original stories. I don't want to just adapt these Solomon Cain stories because I love the character. So I wrote some original Solomon Cain stories too, even though I could have continued with the adaptations. So I do enjoy the writing, but I enjoy it on a spotty basis. I don't want to do it permanently as much as I did the editing. I love the editing. And I think there's, um, for, for people who are editors who want to be writers, a lot of yes. those people are a little bit more, I don't know, inclusive or inward like they don't, they don't, they're not as 
willing to get out there like you are to to talk to people and that kind of thing. Um, an editor, not only is your job producing the books and guiding that that vision and that ship, but you're also guiding the people. You're also nurturing the people. And um, when I was talking to Bill, I, I was talking to Bill Sinkevich, and he said that he definitely wanted to make sure that I, I said hi to you. And here's the message. Yeah. He says, um, please give those two gents my best, referring to Doug and you. And he says, Ralph yeah. especially is one of my favorite people. I don't think he realizes just how much his friendship meant to me creatively. And that's, I think that speaks a lot to a good editor. It's not just about getting books in on time and, and making sure they look nice or whatever, but but it's the emotional environment that you create as well. You know, I, I do really believe that you hit it right on the head. And yes, I, I can only echo those words that, that I do like to work with people. I like to get people to fulfill their potential. That is the most satisfying thing, as I, as I had mentioned to you. Um, and I loved working with all of those guys, and certainly with Bill. Bill and I became fast friends. I mean, uh, Bill and I, um, along with Ann Nascenti and John Romita Jr. and other people, we used to take trips to the Caribbean. Um, nice. because we all became great friends. Yeah. And every year we would, we would go to the Caribbean and hang out. Wow. Um, we went to St. Thomas for years and years and Bill and I became very good friends. I used to go up to his place. He used to come down here. Um, you know, I used to go up there and wash his Porsche. We had a, <laughs> had a great time. It was, it was wonderful. Um, so, uh, yes, that, that to me was important. I, I don't like really being cloistered. I'm not that kind of a, you know, an inward person. I do like the office environment. I like to work with people. I like to see them fulfill their potential. I like to sit with a writer and say, how can we make the story even better? How can, how can I help you get the story out that you want? I like working with artists, even those who are deadline problems. And I like telling them, come on, let's, let's really knock it out of the park with this one. Let's show everybody what you can do. You know, I, I had, I've had experiences like that on so many books where I really wanted to show that an editor is more than the guy who just makes the trains run on time. And, and when I've worked on certain books, I remember when I, I took over Thor again, and this was right after um, Straczynski had left. And I know people were feeling at that point that, well, the book is you know going to go downhill now because Straczynski left and he did a great run. And I came on as editor right afterwards and I said, you know what? I admire what JMS did. I think the, his writing on Thor was the best stuff he did at Marvel. But I'm not going to let that book go down. And so I worked with a new creative team on that book. And we made sure that that book stayed up there in sales and that people enjoyed that book as much as they enjoyed JMS's run. That's the kind of competitive spirit that I have, is that if I take over a book that people aren't expecting to do well, I want to surprise them. I wanted to make sure that when I worked on Ultimate Spider-Man, that it did as well as Amazing Spider-Man. I wanted to make that book the primary Spider-Man book. That was always mm -hmm. in the back of my mind. Wow. And I always wanted to do that. When, when I did the Ultimate line, I wanted to make our Avengers the Ultimates. I wanted to make you know that the, the, the Avengers book that people really tuned into. So that's, and, and that's working with people. You have to kind of try to inspire them. When I worked with David Finch, he had just come over 
from Top Cow, I believe, and he was completely unfamiliar with the idea of a deadline. He said he would just get sent a script, and he didn't have to work on it in his own time. And I said, well, David, things are a little different here. (laughs) Monthly schedule you have to meet. And he was kind of surprised at that. But David and I became very close. And I wanted him to to really fulfill his potential. And of course, what happened with David was uh, he became so good and became so good on deadlines that at one point they put him when they were starting the Avengers Initiative they put him and Bendis yeah. on the Avengers book, right? Right. That was the that was the start of the whole look for Avengers that that restarted the uh, thing and and put the emphasis back on the Avengers line, and they they took my guys to do that. Wow. And I was very I was okay with that because yeah. I said, look, we're all Marvel comics here. I said, you know, Avengers does does good. The company does good. But they came and took my guys to do that, and that was okay with me, and I was very proud of it. I have to, I have to say that they went to Finch and they went to, to Bendis to, uh, to get Avengers uh, really kicking. Wow, and they certainly did. Wow. And they did a heck of a job for, uh, for quite a long time. And then, you know, David, even today, um, you know, what he's been doing over at the DC, some of the stuff he's been doing on Batman is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did the... Um, Thing with Jeff Johns on uh, the the Justice League, um, he had a nice run on there. Um, again, I think that stuff was fabulous, and uh, you know, and I, I I applaud him. His work is, is brilliant. But I I wanted to see him work on a monthly basis. I felt, you know, he was just every once in a while he you know there'd be a David Finch comic, and I said, come on, David, you know, sit down and let's really you know knock it out of the park. I, at one point. Um, David used to tell me that he just loved doing Batman. He wanted to do Batman. This is when he was working for me on, at Marvel. And he says, you know, I really want to do Batman more than anything. So I said, David, I got the solution for you. Get up in the morning, go right to your drawing board, turn the page over, the back of the page, and draw Batman all day long. But then get, get to the page and turn it back and start drawing Ultimate X-Men. I said, <laughs> get, your, get your Batman rocks off on the back of the page. I said, draw the long cape and the cowl and the whole thing. I said, but then turn the page frontwards and draw what, what you're commissioned to do, which is Ultimate x Wow. Well, that's good. I think hopefully he realized his own potential then and uh, uh, just being a little I bit more disciplined did. and stuff. That's really cool. Yes, he did because if you if you see since then, uh, he's a guy who can do a regular monthly series. I mean, he yeah. worked on Wonder Woman for a while, and he did the Avengers for quite some time. And as I said, he went over and uh, he did that whole run with uh, with Jeff Johns on, uh, and I can't remember the, the the name of the that whole run that that he did um, with Jeff, but it was uh, it was a you know great great series of stories. So uh, when I see a David Finch story in print, I'm uh, very proud of him. He's a great guy. Great. But back to Moon Knight. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have anything more to say <laughs> about Moon Knight. We talked uh, about, we, I think we covered pretty much everything here, especially in particular the stuff that you worked on. And coupled with the interview with Doug and what's coming up with Bill, I'm sure, will we'll be just Great. fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be really good. Great, yeah. No, I'm so happy you got in touch with both of those guys. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they, really, they really made Moon Knight. And you know, we also shouldn't forget, um, and I'm sure Doug didn't let you forget Don Perlin too, because uh, he's yeah. the guy that worked with Doug for the, you know, creating the visual for Moon Knight, and um, he was a guy who had a nice long run. He's one of those unsung guys in, in comics. You know, his his work wasn't the most dynamic, but it was always solid. He was very underrated, 
uh, he was always there to, you know, to pitch in. And if you needed him on a book, um, you know, he would do it. He did the defenders for years and he, and he worked on, uh, the, uh, werewolf by night for quite a long time. Yeah. And, uh, he was a solid storyteller. You know, he was the guy that if you turned in the plot to him, you knew you were going to get back the story that you sent to him, you know, and, uh, and that was great. So, you know, Don Perlin deserves a, a shout out too. Definitely. He's a good guy. Yeah. Thanks, Ralph. I really appreciate this again. And I will, I want to talk to you about Thor eventually. Sure. Um, so I'll give you another ring in a, I don't know, down the road in a little while. But thanks terrific, for being terrific. open. I'd be happy to talk. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. 